It's the journey we're on and all of the little things that happen on the way to our goals that really make the difference. We're going to continue with the pursuit. What is up, pursuers? Welcome to episode 10 of Pursuing the Process. Mr. Barnes, it's great to talk to you again, my man. Mr. Todd, not Father Todd, just Todd to you. How you doing? <laughs> I've been called the Todd Father before, so um, oh, you could always use that. I'm absolutely never going to use not? that. Not a chance. Damn. Well, um, I think our listeners, pursuers, will be disappointed here. I'm no longer in Cancun, you know, riding the uh, downslope of a vacation life and um, back to reality here for me. Oh, back to reality of a continued vacation. Booy, boo you. <laughs> Speaking of pursuers uh, for the second time, I think we're going to give a, give a shot uh, at the pursuer mailbag. Let's bring it back. And I love, as you do, I know JB getting pursuer feedback and comments and questions, whether it's through our Facebook page, our Twitter account, or just through text messaging. And so uh, one of the things that really struck a chord with the pursuers was a conversation we had with Justin Galloway in episode eight. Uh, The conversation stemmed from Justin's one year uh, sabbatical from drinking and the question of, you know, what did that teach him about his relationship with alcohol? And we had a conversation about, you know, how I started to document my alcohol consumption. And I do believe it's led to, to lower consumption rates. Um, now that did not hold true when I was in Cancun, just so everybody knows, <laughs> but, um, it did strike a chord with people. And in fact, um, one of my friends texted me and said, Hey, I'm actually going to start that. It sounds like a good idea. Um, I, I think I need that level of visibility and, and, you know, I, I, I'm starting to examine my relationship with alcohol and maybe I'm too reliant on it in my life. And another, another person, sent me an email and said, Hey, I really like that conversation. It's got me thinking about the use of rewards in my life and how much I use alcohol as a reward and, you know, maybe finding alternative ways to reward myself for different things. So, you know, I'm glad our topics are striking a chord with people. And so I appreciate those who have reached out and um, I'm sure John, it, it uh, struck a chord. I know it did with you and, and perhaps with others. It did. And I know, I don't know if there's such a thing as drinking too much when you're a 25 year old probably exploring not. a new city, but <laughs> no, it really was a good point to make. And it's always good to just be aware of how you're acting, how much you're spending time drinking or doing anything for that matter of just where you're spending your time with who. And oftentimes, like you had mentioned, when you're floating with mullet wigs down a river, it can really amplify some experiences, but there's sure. also times where it can be more of that numbing coping mechanism. So understanding where and how it plays is so crucial in your life. So love that topic. Loved a lot of topics from Justin's episode. I mean, yeah. Continue the man crush shout out Justin. For sure, man. And, and I do love that people are thinking about the habit loop too. I, it's something that has changed my life in terms of how we create positive habits and, you know, simple things like writing things down can be reinforcement, um, you know, of some of those habits too. So I, um, really appreciate that. And, you know, we'll, we'll continue to try to find creative ways to build, uh, life lessons into these podcasts. And I know our guests will help us with that too. Uh, speaking of guests, we're going to have a Wisconsin sports journalism legend on the podcast today. Legend. And I'm not even exaggerating about that. Um, we'll, and we'll get to him in just a second. But as I was thinking about this episode, JB, 
Um, I figured you probably had to have a personal sports memory that was maybe tops on your list of personal accomplishments in your athletic career. I know you're a very storied basketball and football (laughs) player. And we did talk to Sam Hauser a few episodes ago about your prowess in the full court press, but (laughs) any, any, any sports memories for you jump to mind in terms of your personal sports career? Oh gosh. If I go on any type of sports personal tangent, my buddies are going to rip me apart. I had buddies where I'd even rock a Stevens point, my former high school, I'd rock a spash Jersey or a shirt anytime after high school and constantly they would just (laughs) chirp me close the yearbook, buddy. Close the yes. barns. They love razzing me for it. So <laughs> I don't know if I have the guts right now to go into that. But one sports memory that does stand out is actually not from the playing days, but it was when the final four was in Minneapolis a few years back in 2018. Oh, yeah. And my brothers, my dad and I, we all had a group of friends. There were about 12 of us that made it down. And if you have ever watched March Madness, been a part of NCAA tournament in any capacity, it is a magical feeling. The kids playing for the love of the game. There's for such sure. excitement, energy around it. So being at kind of that bucket list sporting event with my brothers and dad and our friends, that was an absolute highlight memory for me. We'll never forget it. And I actually cried when they put up the song at the end and they start playing and recapping the tournament. Brought oh, me yeah. to tears. One Brought shining moment. Yep. The one shining moment. Great. great tune. But what about you? I know you also have a history past in the sporting world and it played a big part in your life throughout. So what comes it has. for you? Yeah. I mean, I was the son of a baseball coach and uh, he was a high school coach and uh, was around baseball a long, long time. Played football and basketball too. Really enjoyed all three sports. Um, Hung on to baseball for quite a long time. But if we're talking about experiences as a fan, I, I have to say, um, and and it's funny you mentioned the final four because I, I honestly think my favorite sporting event of all time, I've been to a couple of Rose Bowls where the Badgers won. Um, You know, I've, been to plenty of, of fun events, but I would say my most favorite memory by far was when Wisconsin beat Kentucky in 2015 in the final four to go to the national mm-hmm. championship game. You know, Kentucky came in 38. No, the arena was probably 70% Kentucky fans. We were up in the nosebleeds surrounded by all blue and Heidi and I were just screaming our heads off. And I'll never forget, you know, walking out of that arena and what it was like. And then we were jumping around behind the, the broadcasters uh, on ESPN and holding up the Azure <laughs> Motion W and texting our friends and telling them to look for us on TV. And it's just, and then we got a chance to go to the team hotel um, after that. And the team came back to the hotel and the, the lobby of the Intercontinental in Indianapolis was just packed to the gills. And I just remember looking at the team up on the balcony and just how proud I was to be a Badger fan. And I felt like we had finally broken through in terms of like, we were going to win a national championship. And then of course that didn't happen two days later. So maybe that's the worst experience I've ever had as a, a sports fan, but I'll never forget that final four in 2015 when they knocked off the 38, no Kentucky Wildcats. Oh, what a game it was and what energy that brings. And this honestly just fires me up to get back into <laughs> the sporting memories. So let's dive into it. Cause I'm so excited for the guests we have here today. Let's do it. I have the honor and privilege of introducing Dennis Krause today on episode 10 of Pursuing the Process. If you spent any time in Wisconsin, like John and I have, I'm sure you've heard Dennis's voice or seen his face. He's been extremely instrumental in calling some of the most exciting and important sporting events in Wisconsin history. Dennis has 35 years of experience in news and is currently the host of the Roundtable on Spectrum News. He also hosts the Packer pregame show on radio. And for 25 years, he was the, the color commentator on radio for the Milwaukee Bucks. 
Dennis is extremely accomplished. He's a five-time Wisconsin Sportscaster of the Year and has a number of other accolades to his name. I had a chance to, to meet Dennis a few years ago down at the studio, and I've seen and obviously heard from him for years on TV and radio, as has John. And I have to tell you, my experience with Dennis was incredibly impress impressive. He's an impressive guy, um, very personable, authentic, and curious. And certainly that comes through in his TV personality and radio personality as well. So Dennis, we're honored to have you today. And thanks so much for being a part of the show. Happy to be here. And it, you don't have to say honored because I'm not worth that. <laughs> <laughs> you are well worth that. You, you're honestly a legend of sorts. I mean, not to stroke the ego too much off the gates, but you are seriously a Wisconsin legend. You've done so much for the sports community and fans that have listened throughout the years. So thank you for being on. Well, it's nice of you to say, I don't, I don't think of myself that way. I just think of myself as old, but I appreciate it. <laughs> Well, and I did tell you this in the prep session. We're going to break all of your interviewing rules, I'm sure, which I already have um, <laughs> no problem. In, the in, in the intro. So, um, but, but we really do appreciate it. So, you know, Dennis, where, where maybe we would start is kind of going back to the beginning with you. And we talked about your 35 years in news. Um, I know you got your start actually down in, I think it was Peoria, Illinois. But can you talk about how you got your start in news and how, uh, how that's kind of shaped your, your career arc? Yeah, I grew up in Hartford, uh, Wisconsin, went to UW Oshkosh, wound up in in Peoria, Illinois, and it was a great place for me for a lot of reasons uh, because it was a great learning uh, atmosphere. I was not someone who wanted to operate a camera. I was not good at it, and I didn't have to do that there. That was kind of what you had to do in a lot of entry-level news positions at that time, but instead, they had a radio station, which was really more my background anyway. So I was the number two sports person at WMBD channel 31 CBS affiliate in Peoria and my boss Dave Snell was the voice of Bradley basketball actually still is and so whenever he was on the road with Bradley I would fill in on on TV for him during the week and I would literally finish the six o'clock sports and then walk down the hall and do a half hour radio sports talk show it's called talk about sports and um, so it was great experience for me Peoria was a terrific sports market when I was there from 1984 to 1987. A um, couple of the things that stand out, it was the uh, Cubs Class A minor league affiliate for a couple of those years. And so like Greg Maddox and Mark Grace, Rafael Palmero, all those guys went through there and it was, it was terrific that way. And also it had a minor league a hockey team, which at the time was in the same league as the Admirals, the Peoria Rivermen. And when I was there, they won the Turner Cup championship in, in 1985. So uh, had a lot of fun. I'm not a hockey guy, but I certainly learned mm -hmm. enough to be able to cover the Rivermen during that time. And then uh, after Peoria, just to close the loop, yeah, uh, an opening came up at Channel 4 in Milwaukee. Uh, I had interned there. That didn't guarantee I was going to get it, but at least they, they knew who I was uh, out of the stack of however hundred <laughs> people wanted the job. And so uh, I started at Channel 4 in 1987, and I've been working in Milwaukee ever since. Uh, I, I want to go back to your early days in Peoria real quick, because I know you had a couple of really interesting interviews during your early career. Um, I, I know you interviewed a fresh-faced rookie for the Chicago Bulls named Michael Jordan. Can you talk a little bit about that experience in 1984? Yeah, actually, the Bulls first preseason game that year so in other words michael jordan's first preseason game was in peoria and they held it at the peoria civic center and it was on a friday night and it was actually 
on a on a day where the Cubs at the time were in the playoffs, and so it was kind of an afterthought, to be honest yeah. with you. And the, and the Peoria Civic Center holds about you know ten thousand, give or take. And I'm thinking the crowd was about three thousand for that game, uh, <laughs> and no one knew what Michael Jordan was going to become. And yeah. I went to the morning what they call shoot around which is the light practice that the the bulls had before the game and i i was intense on interviewing kevin lockery <laughs> who, who was their coach and uh, and i i for some reason i really wanted to interview kevin lockery and, and <laughs> so the bulls, yeah the bulls the bulls pr person said well kevin is not available but we can <laughs> we can give you michael jordan and so he was my second choice. I did the interview with Michael <laughs> Jordan. I remember doing um, a feature on him and digging up some file tape of him hitting the winning shot for the NCAA championship in North Carolina. And again, he was not the superstar he, he is now that we think of. At that time, it was, you know, he was a first-round rookie, high draft pick, number three in the draft. But yeah. who knew he was going to become what he became? And uh, it was a lot of fun. That was quite the <laughs> consolation interview for you, Dennis. Absolutely. Yeah, not a bad second choice at all. And early on, as you've progressed and you knew what you wanted to do from a young age, I think that's such a blessing, knowing what you want early on. But there's really no playbook to become what you have become in the sports world. How did you go about finding that next step and just continuing the hustle to build on what you wanted to create in your life? Well, you know, a lot of it is luck and I'd say luck and hard work. And nobody is going to give you anything. It's, it's a very competitive business. And you have to have someone, you know, give you a shot to show you what, you know, to, to allow yourself to show what you can do. And I worked for three years in Peoria, kind of honing my craft. And, and a lot of the time I wasn't very good. I'll be honest with you at that first station, you're, you're stumbling on the air. You're, you're making uh, maybe judgment errors on what's more important as far as how much time you give something in a sports cast. And I could, th- this just popped into my mind is that while I was doing a sports cast on TV, the day that Doug Flutie had that memorable touchdown pass. Oh yeah. Against Miami. Well, right. long story short, it was a very busy sports day in Peoria. There was like a local high school team in the state championship game, whatever. And so there was a lot going on in Peoria and I had that Flutie thing at the end of my sports cast and I <laughs> ran out of time. And so I didn't get to show it which is stupid. It was bad judgment <laughs> on my part. And so that gives you an example of how you're, you're learning how to do yes. things. And um, that was really, when I was in Peoria, I was always thinking, okay, where am I going to go from here? And as I look back on it now, I wish I just enjoyed where I was more, but I was always fixated on the next step. And it ended up being a return to Milwaukee, which was, you know, where I was from. And as you guys know, uh, if you know the history of teams, if you know the history of the Brewers and the Bucks and the Packers and the Badgers, whatever, it just it makes it so much easier. Because when I went to Peoria, I knew nothing. It, it's so different, as you guys know, to learn another city and their history of sports, whereas right. something you just know from having lived it. I mean, you can just ask me about the 1970s Packers or whatever, and I would know that just because mm-hmm. I grew up in and live through it. Well, I didn't live through Bradley Braves basketball in the 1970s. So it's just a different feel to have to learn another city. And that's why I was so fortunate to be able to come back to Milwaukee. Can you be a sports personality or broadcaster, Dennis, and still be a fan? Or does, does that diminish your fandom in some way? You know, it, 
I think you can. I'd have to admit that for me, a lot of that was sucked out of me um, mm. because what happens is you cover games in press boxes and they have rules. I mean, you can't, you're yeah. not in, you're not in the bleachers. You can't be waving <laughs> a foam finger, you know, you have to be <laughs> professional. So it's kind yeah. of funny that gets drilled into you that when I'm home watching a game, my, my wife will, you know, I show no emotion <laughs> when I'm watching <laughs> a game because I'm not a fan anymore. And, and yeah. that's not always good. I think you should have some of that fan in you. But mm-hmm. I've just, you know, what happens is, just to be really honest with you, what happens when you're in this business, you always think about how it affects you. So yeah. instead of thinking like, oh, the Packers are going to the Super Bowl, that's fantastic. <laughs> you're thinking, I'm going to be uh-huh. away from home for 10 days. It's going to be hard work, yes. uh, you know, 18 yes. hour days, whatever. So you, it's, it's automatically you go to a very selfish place rather than being, <laughs> you know, enjoying it like a fan. Mm. Yeah. And I think that brings on something I'm intrigued by just from the naivety of understanding necessarily the background of the anchoring reporting world. Do they place limits on you in terms of what you can say and what you can't, or do you have freedom of speech completely autonomous on your own within the network space? You know, it's not so much that they put limits on you. It's just kind of understood that Mm -hmm. once you're in the media, you can't be waving the pom-poms anymore. That's just, that's not your job. And I think if you were, a sportscaster and you were just, you know, blindly, you know, let's say the Packers lost the game 35, nothing. And you go on the air and say, well, they played hard, you know, <laughs> you got to give it up for the guy. You know, people don't yeah. want to hear that. You have to kind of what I've tried to do unsuccessfully or, or successfully. That's not for me to judge is I've tried to think what fans might be thinking, but I can't be one of them. If, if that makes sense, I have to be, Yes. kind of looking at it more objectively. That makes sense. Um, speaking of covering sporting events, what, what's the most memorable one you've ever covered, Dennis? I think it was the 1996 NFC Championship game at Lambeau Field when the Packers beat the Carolina Panthers. And here's why. You know, I've covered, and, and not to, you know, make it sound like I'm a great person, but I mean, I've, I've covered three Super Bowls. But that NFC Championship game in Green Bay, because remember – between the ice bowl and that game, there wasn't a whole lot of winning going on in green Bay. And I lived (laughs) through that. So, you know, that's what made that, that year and that NFC championship game so special. And why that stands out more than the super bowls is because the super bowls are more like a corporate thing or, you know, big shots from whatever city that game at Lambeau, January 12th, 1997, those were Packers fans. You know, those were people that had suffered, through lean years some of them remembered the glory years of the 60s but some did not and I, I just think that it was a whole different feel to be at Lambeau Field that day than to cover Super Bowls and you know the other NFC championship games that I covered that the Packers won were in San Francisco and Chicago so oh, right. that was the that was the only NFC championship game that I covered that they won in Lambeau. Mm-hmm. So that that made it special. Oh, that's special in itself. And clearly there was something. I know you are so humble and won't admit it yourself, but there's been so many pieces to you that's created such success. So early on as you're getting into broadcasting, reporting, what are your strengths that really led you to success and continually progress to a next step? 
I think, you know, um, working hard, you know, my parents were both factory workers. I, I, you know, I come from a very, uh, working class type background. And so I was determined to whatever my, I mean, look, there are people that are going to be better looking than me that are more connected than me. I, I get all that. And that's always been the case, but I didn't want to be outworked. And so my approach was, okay, I, I'm going to just work very hard. And I think what I tried to do is stay relatable. You know, don't, don't put yourself above who you're talking to either through radio or TV. You, you're, mm-hmm. you're one of them. And I think it helped me because I was in my home area. And yep. so I didn't think that I was some, you know, I, I, I was always the kid from Hartford. That's how I look at myself who was just lucky enough to have this job. Other people can do the job and probably do it as well, but you've got to work hard to stay there. I think another so, element of that is self-awareness though, too, and just understanding who you are and who you are not. I know in the space, a lot of people are former pro athletes, yourself not coming from that background, but always being in the reporting space. How did you continue to lean into who you are to develop trust with your listeners? Yeah, I mean, I have to admit that there are some things if you were a pro athlete that you went through that I'm never going to be able to understand. Mm-hmm. So I'll give you an example. When I was doing Bucks games, I think when I started doing those games in, in uh, 1996, okay, I was trying too hard to be the basketball expert. Well, I didn't coach. I didn't play. Mm-hmm. So I had to eventually find my way to what I was comfortable being And that was doing, you know, a lot of research on the other team, for example, and maybe some little nugget of information uh, that listeners would find interesting that I would just drop in. It wasn't my job to be the play-by-play guy. It was my job to, as they say, be the color analyst. And so, yes, I I would comment on strategy or whether you should foul or all that stuff, but I never tried to pass myself off as a former NBA player because I wasn't. I mean, I was a kid who was cut twice in high school at Hartford. So I can't pass myself off as a great basketball player. What I can do is be a good broadcaster who does his homework on the teams and hopefully can slide something in when, when it's appropriate. Well, and I'm glad you you touched on that, that element of preparation because you are famous or maybe it's more accurately depicted notorious for your level of preparation including your reliance on uh, paper files that you keep for every opponent (laughs) of the of the team you're covering. So can you talk a little bit about how your, your, just your, your process for preparation and how this differentiated you? Yeah. You know, uh, I, I'm kind of old fashioned. Uh, I'm sure many broadcasters have all this stuff on computers and they can update it very quickly. I still use handwritten notes that I stick in folders. So once I know who the Packers are going to play through a season, I'll pull out the folders for those teams I use a website, ussportspages.com, that I spend probably at least an hour on every day. And I don't read everything from all those cities' newspapers, but what I do is I'll find articles that, that might provide some of those nuggets that I was talking about, and then I'll make a note of that, drop it in the file, and then when that team plays the Packers, I've got all that stuff in the file, and you're not starting from ground zero the Monday before a Packers whoever game, you know, you already have a head start on that. And I would also say 
the homework that I did for the Bucks games was is much different than the Packers games in the sense that when I'm doing a Packers pregame show, it's not a lot about human interest. <laughs> okay. Yeah. It, it's a it's about getting people prepared for that day's game. So I don't prepare for a Packers game the way I did for Bucks games, where I looked for you know, human interest stories that were something you could flesh out during a guy shooting a free throw. It's different preparation when you're doing for a Packers pregame. Mm, absolutely. I know your preparation has led to just a dialed in approach. You come across well-prepared. It's perceived from people listening, but then there's an element of you need to be in the moment as well. And you got to be bold to take some shots. And I think about even times when I was reading up on an interview that you spontaneously sparked up with George Bush can you touch on that and the elements of just being bold and how it's fostered unique opportunities in your career? What happened was um, it was the late 90s and the older George Bush was no longer president. He was already out of of the White House. I was um, doing Bucks TV. I was <laughs> uh, I was actually because I'm sorry, my fault. I was doing Bucks radio that night and filling in for Howard David, who was gone doing Monday Night Football. So I'm, I'm doing Bucks radio, and for that, I need a pregame guest and a halftime guest, both taped before the game. So my target really was Calvin Murphy. Again, here's a common thread. I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm settling for somebody else. Another uh, consolation prize. I wanted Calvin prize. Murphy, who at the time was a Rockets TV broadcaster, and he was going through some rehearsals or something and just kept going on and on and on, and I'm running out of time. I look across the court, and there's – former president Bush surrounded by a small security detail. <laughs> and I'm thinking, you know, desperation leads to creativity. I'm thinking, <laughs> I'm just going to go over there and see if I can talk to him. So I went over and I said to the secret service person, whoever was standing around him, I look, I'm from the Bucks radio network. I just want to ask him about sports, nothing controversial, nothing political, whatever. And he was very gracious and did it. And I always remember he was wearing presidential cowboy boots eating a taco and drinking a beer and, and it, you know so he, he just couldn't have been nicer as i did that interview and and i don't even realize i didn't even realize what i was doing at the time you're just <laughs> you're just i've got to get an interview and i know this is going to be good so you go after it what, what do you what do you think dennis makes a great interview i think first of all you have to listen to the person you're interviewing you know you can go in with a list of questions, that's fine. You should be prepared. But if your guest says something that's not covered on your sheet, <laughs> you have to react to it in the moment. You can't just be, okay, next, you know, question number seven. <laughs> you, 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 you can't be that scripted. You have to uh, allow for the spontaneous moments, and sometimes those are the best, when you get a guest to to reveal something that maybe they didn't even think they were going to reveal. But once they've revealed it, you can't just go on to the next question. You have to, the way, yeah, it has to be a conversation, I guess is the best way I'd put mm -hmm. it. And you have to envision that you're like having a beer and a, and a fish fry with someone and you're just having a conversation and the listeners or viewers are seeing that, but it has to be natural. And so what I would do, actually in the later years of doing an interview show, I would have a list of questions, but then I'd stick that list in my coat pocket and only use it if I drew a blank. Uh, I wanted to be able to just react to what the person was saying 
and be spontaneous. Mm. That touches on an interesting dichotomy here, because as you say that, I know Todd and I have gotten that feedback from even pursuers as they've listened to this. It's really good when it's a conversation. We can tell when it seems more scripted, but it also makes me think of something you mentioned earlier around your career progression and how at times it was tough to be in the moment because you wanted what was next. But then the art of interviewing comes in where you have to be in the moment to make it successful. So looking back early on, what advice would you give to your younger self that was always so driven and maybe not enjoying the current moment? Yeah, I, I took it way too seriously. Um, I, I think that I, I'm thinking of myself in Peoria. And like I said earlier, you know, those three years, I had some good times and some good friends, but I was so driven and so hard on myself. If I stumbled on one word in a sports cast, that whole show was a disaster. Um, that and I used to just analyze the tapes and whatever and and I learned through the years and maybe it was laziness or just not having <laughs> the time but I don't look at the tapes much anymore and I know they're not perfect but I you just got to be on to the next thing and and nothing really is accomplished by you beating yourself up over some small mistake that the viewer or listener probably didn't even notice and I think I spent way too much of my career consumed with trying to be perfect. And this is not a business you're ever going to be perfect ever. There's no perfect show. There's no perfect game. There's no perfect broadcast. You're going to do something you wish you could do better, but you have to be able to move on to the next thing. Yeah. There's a lot of wisdom in that Dennis. And there are also moments in your life that maybe cause you to reflect on what's truly important. And certainly you had that about 10 years ago when you had, you you suffered a stroke Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about kind of how that impacted your career and your life in general? Yeah, I, you know, it was it was February of 2012. And um, I think what it was, was it kind of going back to what I answered in the previous question. It was like I took stuff way too seriously. I didn't handle it. I thought it was handling it, but it was obviously uh, taking a toll on my uh, psyche. And, it, and the stroke, if, if people aren't familiar, it's basically a brain uh, injury. And I had, you know, a mild stroke. It was not a mini stroke. It was a stroke, but it wasn't, mm-hmm. you know, it wasn't the kind that obviously put me in a wheelchair, but it knocked me out for, I think, six weeks. And I had to learn how to talk over again. And, you know, I used to be able to just rattle off uh, sports details at at random and i had to relearn a lot of that and the way i've described it is that it was kind of like a computer being rebooted i mean i i could uh always remember every super bowl and who was in it and who won it whatever that and and for a while there that was all gone and then i got that back and i can't explain it um but what it did was it put in perspective for me that you know what i can't i can't worry to the point where it's affecting my health i have to just do the best i can and and that has to be enough mm. and it has to be an emotional toll given someone who's made a career of talking to have such an injury like that and i know at first it was probably uncomfortable to really open up about why have you become more comfortable and what's led to you being more willing to share your story well i think because i've run into people that have suffered strokes and mm-hmm. are looking for people to you know when i had a stroke i was looking for role models of okay what sportscasters have had strokes and come back from them. And it was hard to find. I mean, I found like Harry Carey had had a stroke. 
but you know, he, he, he lost something of his fastball when he came back. Uh, yeah. Regis Philbin had a stroke and, and really quite frankly was never the same. So I was lucky to be able to regain a lot of what I wanted to do. But I mean, I got to be honest with you. It was, it was hard to go back the first Bucks game, the first uh, interview show, because when I started, I wasn't sure what was going to come out of my mouth because I was still, like I said, relearning how to talk and had to have speech therapy and physical therapy and everything else. So um, I think for me, what it was, it was humbling, you know, to know that it can go that quickly and you better enjoy it because you never know when it's going to end. Yeah, you're absolutely right. My, my mother had a, a minor stroke as well. And I saw her go through some very difficult rehabilitation from that. So I, I guess I have a firsthand appreciation of seeing a family member go through it. Hats off to you for, I'm sure what was very hard work to get, to, to get back to the top of your profession. And you even, you even won your fifth Wisconsin sportscaster of the year award after you had had your stroke. So how gratifying was that? Yeah, that one was, uh, you know, and I've often joked that it was the voters uh, voting for sympathy, but uh, (laughs) I mean, it it was a sweet moment because, you know, there were times right after the stroke where I couldn't speak a sentence and you're thinking, you know, how am I ever going to get back to being a sportscaster at a high level? And then to, to receive that award afterwards was very gratifying. Is it hard to maintain a private life when you have such a public image, Dennis? Yes and no. I mean, I, I, you know, it's not like it's not like I'm a movie star. Uh, I mean, yeah. and if you don't want the attention, don't go into it. <laughs> I guess <laughs> yeah. what I would say. I mean, yeah, you're going to have people looking at you in the supermarket or at BP as you fill your car with gas, but get over it. I mean, it's it, 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 <laughs> most of the ninety nine point nine percent of the time. People are very nice, and they they just want to know that you're a regular person, which you certainly are. So, you know, I, I think you can make too much of oh, I don't want the attention. Well, then don't go don't go into the business if you don't want people looking at you. <laughs> That's fair. It's a part of it when you're a publicly recognized figure like that. Yeah. So speaking of going into the business, Dennis, what do you think the impact of social media has been on journalism and sports? Well, I think it's, it's, it's had mixed effect. Uh, I would say, first of all, from a positive standpoint, um, you don't have to wait hours to break mm-hmm. a story. I mean, you can immediately put it on, on Twitter and, you know, and there it is. Uh, I can remember when I started in the business, you know, you might, I'm thinking of like, a, when I was in Peoria, there was a very successful girls basketball coach who, who left for a college job uh, with, I, I shouldn't say with, but at the same time as their star player to that same college. Okay. So mm-hmm. I had to sweat it out for hours that somebody else was going to have that story. Whereas nowadays I, I could just put it on Twitter immediately and break the story. That's a positive. Obviously mm-hmm. the negative is being hypersensitive to anyone who can write derogatory things. So, you know, people aren't going to always love you. Mm-hmm. They're, they're going to say things that might be hurtful and you have to be able to be strong and, and withstand that. I think another element I've seen is it can get so noisy and just trying to figure out what's true and what's not. How much did you pride yourself on having that reliable source of truth people could rely on? Very much so. Um, I mean, I think that if you don't have credibility, 
what do you have, <laughs> you know, in, yeah. in, in, the, yeah. in the business that, that we're in. Um, I have gotten past the point of, like I said before, wanting to be so perfect that you can never make a mistake. You're going to make mistakes. But what you don't want to do is make careless mistakes, you know, that you could have. I don't know why my mind goes to this, but I'll tell you the story. I was filling in on the 10 o'clock sports on Channel 4 the night that stock car driver Alan Kulwicki from Greenfield was killed in a plane crash. Mm-hmm. And so I'm literally on the set at WTMJ. And in those days, there were old wire copy machines. And someone brings into me literally seconds before I'm about to start my sportscast the teletype saying Alan Kowicki is believed dead on this plane crash. Okay. So you have seconds to process all this. And what I'm thinking is, you know, his dad might be watching in Greenfield. I later found out he was. So um, I was, I was very cautious. I said that this was a, this was a plane that Alan Kowicki was scheduled to be on. We don't know for sure if he was on it. Um, We don't know for sure if he's dead, if he got on that plane or not. All we know is the people that were on that plane were killed. So I was like trying to leave it open because as, as many people have said, you know, once you say someone's dead, you can't get that back. So um, I I wanted to be a hundred percent sure. And, you know, and there were other stations that said, Hey, he's dead. And, and they were right. Yeah. They were right. But what if he wasn't, you know, so exactly. uh, I don't regret being, being cautious that night, but to get to your, why I weave that into your question is I took it and I still take it seriously that people think, you know, what you're talking about and you should never underestimate the power of your words and who might be watching. It's mm. good. There is another piece in there. We talked about not making, not being afraid to make mistakes and taking the risks. What risks have you taken in your career that you've seen pay off? The biggest uh, risk that I took was when I was at WMOX radio in Milwaukee, uh, 1982, I'd only been there like a month. And I was offered a job to come be a part-time DJ at WKTI radio in Milwaukee for the same money, $6 an hour. But the difference was um, at WKTI, I could interview in the channel Four sports department. So I thought I have to do this because that's, that's really what I want to do. So it was very awkward to go into the program director at WMYX who had just hired me, you know, and say I'm leaving. But I just felt I had to do it. And looking back on it, that kind of triggered my whole sports career. So it was the right thing to do, but it was a risk. Yeah, I, uh, it's a great, that's a great anecdote. And actually reminds me of another story where you took a risk and you called John Wooden at his house, legendary <laughs> UCLA basketball coach. Back in 1985, you tracked down his home number and interviewed him. Can you just share a little bit on that and why you did it and t- approached it that way and how the interview went? Well, I think this goes back to Peoria and two words that I was uh, naive and stupid. Uh, because <laughs> I mean, here I'm thinking, I'm in Peoria, Illinois. How am I going to get an interview with John Wooden? Right. Well, I call 
the the UCLA Sports Information Office. I describe who I am. I say, you know, I'm doing a pregame show for Bradley Basketball and just would like to do an interview with Coach Wooden. Never thinking that they would actually take me seriously. They did. They gave me his home number. I called him <laughs> and I did the interview. And he was he was fantastic. And I, I have no right to expect that he would answer the phone. I had no right to expect he would give me 10 minutes of his time, but he did. And so that was certainly a risk. It was almost a risk, a brazen, egotistical risk, you know, that he would even be interested in doing it, but he did it. And I guess, I guess what I would say to anyone listening to this is you might have this incredible goal that seems out of reach, but if you don't try, you're, you're not yeah. going to know. And so it's worth a shot. And you know, what, what would have been the worst that happened? UCLA would have laughed at me in my face and said, we're not going to give you his home number. He doesn't he's right. not talk to some Yahoo from Peoria, Illinois, <laughs> but because I asked the question, I yep. got the answer that led to the interview. So what was that like when he picked up the phone? Um, I mean, was it, did you have to explain a lot about who you were or was he kind of familiar with people calling him out of the blue to interview him? He, he was familiar. I, I guess what, what I felt was shock, you know, I, yeah. I, I, yeah. I, there's John Wooden answering the phone, <laughs> uh, yeah. but he did. And I don't even remember how I, you know, introduced myself, but all yeah. of a sudden I'm taping the interview. And I thought to myself, and I remember for a while there, I thought, well, I can get anybody, you know? So I had like a list of, you know, I want to get Red <laughs> Auerbach and I, you know, all, and I didn't get a lot of these people, but I tried and it was worth the effort because sometimes it pays off. Absolutely. It does show. I mean, you have to ask the questions and sometimes you have to be bold enough. The worst they can say is no. Right. Yeah. And I, I think, I think in our society and in our world that, people are so afraid of having their feelings hurt or having mm -hmm. someone say no that they're afraid to take chances. And I just don't know that you're ever going to advance if you don't take a chance. Absolutely. Very well said. That's so true. And that's a theme that's come up a number of times on this podcast um, is just how fear of failure can either propel you forward or it can hold you back. And um, it's a great example of where it propelled you forward, Dennis. And um you know, I'm sure a huge break early on in your career to get that kind of interview. Um, it, it, you know, that, yeah. that was a show that I did um, in, at WMBD in Peoria where I was I was able to because you just use a phone. You know, I mean, how how easy can it be in, in those days? Yeah. You know, you just call somebody and I, I got some, you know, I thought some pretty big name guests just because I called them on the phone. And that was that was fun to do. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, one other experience that we wanted to ask you about, both being uh, Wisconsinites ourselves, you called on radio the Bucks NBA championship last year, first NBA championship for the Milwaukee Bucks in 50 years. Um, what what did that championship mean for the city of Milwaukee, in your opinion? Or what what can and, and what can sports do for a city? I think uh, sports can do a, a ton for a city, and I think when I was going through the playoff run um, a lot of my feelings were shaded by the 25 years that I had done their games, because a lot of those years, yeah. as you guys know, they weren't very good. No. And so Ted Davis and I, and Ted, you know, let's, let's give credit where it's due. I mean, he was the guy carrying most of the water and I was just chipping in. 
But I, I think that our attitude was, okay, this could be historic. We all knew, you know, at least I knew, certainly, Eddie Doucette's call in 1971 when they mm-hmm. swept the Baltimore Bullets. And so I was very conscious as a color man that I wanted to stay out of Ted's way and let him have the moment when they actually won the title. So yeah. if you listen to the tape of the end of game six, I actually shut up for a long time because it wasn't my moment, you know, and, and yeah. I didn't want to jump on Ted and try to interject myself into the moment. It was, it was his moment and I wanted him to have it. Um, and, and I just tried to add, you know, the human, what we were seeing, you know, because I think if someone's listening on the radio and they're listening to a Milwaukee Bucks broadcast, they wanted to know, okay, how are the fans reacting? How are the Bucks reacting on the, on the floor? And so right. you just try to paint those pictures. I guess the word that I keep coming back to as far as what, what that was like was surreal because mm-hmm. in all the years I had done the Bucks, I have to be honest with you, I didn't think about them winning championships. No, so there were, there were, there were years where they were lucky to make the playoffs. So exactly. I didn't, I didn't even go there in my mind that I would be someday be on a broadcast where they won a championship. Well, and that's, I mean, I was in the building in game six for that title and uh, I never felt energy like I felt in that building. And I think it was decades of frustration kind of all coming off people's shoulders. I remember going to the Bradley center when I was young and the lack of interest in the team. And then they were good in the early two thousands and they had Glenn Robinson and many other cast of really good players during that period, but they never, never even got to an NBA championship series, let alone won a title. And so this is such a huge thing. Can you comment a little bit on just how the city of Milwaukee reacted to it, in your opinion, Dennis, and what it did for us here? Yeah, the thing that I go to is uh, for Spectrum News 1, covering the parade, and you saw the Mm -hmm. different ages and demographics of, of people just enjoying the the victory and and you know let's not sugarcoat it we're we're at a very polarized time where people don't agree on much and right they agreed on the bucks and it was great to see the city come together and just the sea of people you know uh on, on a summer day in milwaukee celebrate a championship it was it was something that i'll never forget because it was almost to me more or just as special the parade as being in the arena that the Bradley center, I mean, Pfizer form that the night they won the championship, because it, it was just this outpouring of affection that was spontaneous from so many different types of people that really don't have anything in common mm-hmm. <laughs> other than yeah. being Bucks fans. Mm-hmm. Beauty of sports. And create such special moments. What a special moment that is, as you, picture people coming together, a sense of community. I think as human beings, we all strive to have a sense of belonging community and something like that, which brings people together. Those are the moments that make life just ecstatic and just lights you up inside. Absolutely. I mean, I, I can remember um, talking to people the day of the parade and uh, Tom Kurtz running a lot of the Spectrum News 1 coverage. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it was just the f- people – because I was on the radio, they acted like I had something to do with them winning the championship, <laughs> which I didn't. But yeah. it, it was great. It was great to just to be able to be with people in a happy occasion, you know, where I think they were all kind of pinching themselves like, did this really happen? 
because let's face it, as a Wisconsin sports fan, they're kind of conditioned. We're kind of conditioned to being let down there. You know, I, I figured once. Yes, we are. That out of all my years of sports casting, if you add like Packers, Bucks, Brewers, Wisconsin basketball, Marquette basketball, anyway, it's like 200 years. And out wow. of those 200, three championships, <laughs> two wow. Super Bowls and the Bucks championship. That paints the picture of what we go so, through here in the state, for sure. Those are the odds. Yep. Those are the yep. odds. And so that's why you have to appreciate it when you have it. That's true. Uh, one other thing, this is maybe a perfect segue. Speaking of appreciating what you have, one other accomplishment I didn't mention early on in your bio is you've been married, what, 35 years? Is that correct? Yeah, it's going to be 35 years this year. And uh, oh. in, in this business, that's that's a hard thing to do. And, well, you know, yeah. yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, that's that's the road I was going to go down is how how did you and Julie stay married that long in the industry that you're in? And how did you work? How did you strike the right balance in your life? You have two kids. How did you do that? Uh, all the credit to her, you know, for putting up with my nonsense. And uh, <laughs> I go back to when we we're talking earlier about the stroke. She was yeah. very encouraging at that time, like uh, almost tough love, you know, in the sense that, hey, you know, you give up too easily. You've got to fight through this, whatever. I mean, she was the one pushing me through the adversity. And I think, you know, and, and maybe this is something that your listeners can relate to. What you think at the time is a disappointment professionally mm-hmm. might actually be a good thing personally. And I go back to when I was at Channel 4, uh, my ego was out of joint when I didn't get promoted to the 10 o'clock sports. Mm-hmm. Well, if I had done the 10 o'clock sports, I would have been gone a lot of nights. And I'm not sure my, you know, how my marriage would have handled that. Whereas yeah. I was able to be home you know, by seven most nights big difference, big difference. Yeah. And, and uh, so I guess that what I'm trying to say is I've had a few times like that in my career where I really thought, Oh, I can't believe there's this setback, but in the long run, it was the best thing for me as a person. You talk about the accomplishments from the familial side to so many legacy games that you were a part of. And we know that when you actually called up John Wooden, you asked a question about legacy. So we'd love to flip the script on you and ask you to close out here. What do you want your legacy to be? You know, uh, I, I, I don't think I'm that important to have a legacy, but if I were to have one, I would say <laughs> that um, he was a local guy who stayed true to who he was and worked hard and was a straight shooter, you know, didn't try to, try to lie to advance himself. You know, he just told it like it was and worked hard at it. And I think, I think I'm relatable because – there's whole, not a whole lot separating me from a lot of the people that are either watching or listening to me. I just happen to have the platform. Yeah. I, I think the way you expressed it um, and, and I think in your, in, in your bio that I read was, you know, you asked the kind of questions that people would ask if they were there instead of you. So I think you're incredibly relatable from that perspective. And uh, you do have a legacy Dennis, certainly in this state um, and you know, you'll continue to build that, I'm sure. Um, and we're just so grateful that you made us a part of uh, your opportunity to tell your story and, and to be on the podcast today. We just can't thank you enough for being so generous with your time and, and your, your stories. You're welcome. Had fun with it. And I wish you uh, all the best. Thank you, Dennis. Thank you, Dennis. Appreciate it. All right, guys. See you.
it was such an honor and privilege to have Dennis Krause on the show today. First of all, I got to give my buddy Tom Kurtz a shout out for facilitating that. Tom's a director at Spectrum News who works closely with Dennis. Dennis referenced him earlier in the, the episode during the interview. And I got to give Tommy a shout out. Thanks, buddy, for doing that. Uh, I really enjoyed the conversation a lot. I mean, Dennis is part of the fabric of Wisconsin sports and has been for three and a half decades. And especially fans here in southeastern Wisconsin know Dennis's voice and his face from so many different things and so many great moments in Wisconsin sports history. So it was an honor and privilege to have him on. I think, you know, one of my takeaways really from from the conversation was just how prepared Dennis is. And he is notorious for the amount of notes he has and makes in anticipation of a broadcast. And his, his uh, office downtown is full of paper. And he's old school in that way. But it makes him incredibly successful. And the hard work and preparation has definitely paid off for him. And, uh, you know, I couldn't have been happier to have him on the show today. But, JB, I'm sure you struggled with some of these stories because you weren't even born during most of Dennis's <laughs> career. So uh, what's it all about for you? It's about just trying to keep up in a conversation you're so lost in and <laughs> really try to understand what references he's talking about. No, I, I do recall most, if not all of his references. Thank you very much. Came up from a sports background. But for me, he clearly touches on the hard work and preparation like you touched on. But I think an underlying theme to it is knowing who you are and staying true to that really relates with people. He knows the type of person he is being a humble Wisconsin guy what aspects he's good at, leaning into his strengths. I think that's a unique element to him that I've taken away is really trying to develop self-awareness and understanding who you are. Well, you know, and, and you mentioned humble. Uh, you know, he, he was the Bucks radio broadcaster, color commentator for 25 years. And the Bucks finally broke through last year and won their first NBA title in 50 years. And what he said about not taking the moment away from Ted Davis, who was the play-by-play guy, mm-hmm. just shows how, how humble he is and how self-aware he is. Um, and, and just what a, you know, true professional Dennis Krause is. So I think just wanted to put an exclamation point on that, John. I think it's a very, very astute observation. So thank you to Dennis for being on. Thanks to all the pursuers for listening. Look forward to putting more episodes out in, in the near future. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And we are out.